Hello, welcome to this very special series of Grazy Her's Life on the Land, where we deep dive into the lives, passions and projects of each of the seven national finalists of the 2023 AgriFutures Rural Women's Award. For the last 21 years, the AgriFutures Rural Women's Award has empowered and celebrated the leadership of women involved in Australia's rural and emerging industries, businesses and communities. Equipped with a $15,000 Westpac grant, each of the state and territory winners are in the running for the national winner and runner-up to be announced in September. Awarded an additional $20,000 and $15,000 Westpac grant, respectively. My name is M. Herbert, your host for this series. Not all flowers are grown equal. That's the stance of Nikki Davey, a truffle and flower producer from Victoria's Glenmore. The entrepreneur won the AgriFutures Rural Women's Award finalist for Victoria for her work co-founding Grown Not Flown, a digital platform that supports the slow flower movement, connecting flower consumers with local and sustainable producers. The platform is now being used in 27 countries and counting. Not bad for a biz that's only been on the block for two years. Yet, Nikki never thought she'd come back to the 300-acre property she grew up on, let alone work to make it a viable business. Uh, Nikki, thank you so much for joining me this morning. Um, I was You grew up on small acreage, but your parents always worked off farm. So I was wondering what are some of your strongest memories growing up? Yes, it was definitely riding horses. Um, we're very much a horsey family. I don't ride horses so much these days because I fell off and broke my ankle when I was 13 years old and I had to have multiple surgeries and couldn't get back on a horse for um for at least 12 months as part of as part of that. So I lost a lot of my confidence. But it was definitely sort of riding horses, moving stock, using the horses, um, and just really, you know spending time driving around, fixing fences, weed management, all of those things that aren't actually enjoyable, but are good to (laughs) reflect on and romanticize a little. (laughs) Did you, when you were growing up, envisage that you would have a lifestyle similar where you would perhaps work off farm, but come back to that sort of small acreage feel? Absolutely not. I never thought that I would return to live on our family farm or that I would sort of take it over. I'm not a natural farmer. And so um, I have always sort of worked in the corporate environment, love big cities, love um, the, you know, the hustle bustle of of living in a bigger city. But uh, when we, when we were living in Melbourne, um, and then when we wanted to buy, we couldn't afford to buy in the city. So we moved to Bacchus Marsh. And then from there, we sort of took over the family farm as part of succession planning. And um, it was just sort of a, the natural progression was to sort of move back to the farm as well, because it, if the farm got too busy for us also to be able to manage multiple properties. But I wouldn't have it any other way now. And, and sometimes it's hard to sort of think that um, that I didn't want this life. <laughs> Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Things don't often go as you expect. When you were growing up, obviously your parents did work off farm, but they had beef cattle. Did you ever consider that it could be a full-time venture or that it would be viable as a business full-time? 
It was something, I don't even think we really kind of thought about it, if I'm honest. I think that it was just something that my mum and dad did because they loved it. And then both my older sisters, um, they're sort of natural, they're far more natural farmers than what I am. And they always really enjoyed the land. And my older sister, Tony, she had sort of a small property just down the road as well. And she's always kept horses. And um, and then my other sister, Lee, she's got uh, sort of two kids and one of them is, you know, really heavily into the horses as well. So they spend a lot of time out here. But it was just something I'd never really kind of thought about. I we, we sort of knew that as part of my mum and dad sort of retiring, we were going to need to have these conversations or we were going to need to make decisions around what happened to the property and whether we kept it. Um, and as part of that, it would mean that we would need to sort of take it over. But I certainly didn't envision you know, being full time on on the farm, and um, and probably I, I mean I'm still I'm I'm on the farm full time, but I work on grown not flown sort of the majority yeah. of the time as well. But yeah, it wasn't anything I'd really kind of even considered or, or thought about, and I don't think my sisters had either. Yeah, it's so interesting. I'll definitely I'd love to circle back to the succession planning and, and what drew you back there in a tick. But prior to that you know, even prior to your corporate experience, you were traveling a lot and you spent quite a lot of time in the States, which is where you met your partner, Sam. Can you tell me about what drew you over to the States and, and your travels over there? Yeah. So I think I was just mostly young and curious and I, I just, I'd always wanted to work in the summer camps. I don't know whether it was a little bit of, you know, again, sort of romanticizing, watching, um, growing up watching a lot of US television, but the summer camps always sort of looked like a lot of fun and um, and was really sort of appealing to me. And so when I was young, I just, I made the decision. I, I, I put my application in um, and was accepted to, to sort of go over and work in. It ended up being uh, a Jewish camp. I'm not a religious, but I didn't grow up with any sort of religion. And so it was really interesting for me to go and learn about um, the Jewish culture and religion and, uh, and that sort of thing as well. But um, it was it was just something that I wanted to experience and and to be honest with you I was going by myself and it was a great gateway to be able to meet other like like-minded people who were also going to be tra- wanting to travel around and so I went there I met some incredible people who are still some of my best friends today um and yeah had lots of incredible experience and um memories with them as well but I ended up working in the summer camp for four different summers um which was a lot of fun because you just kind of go out and hang out in the sun I worked doing lifeguarding and swim teaching and you know exactly what you see in the films a big lake with lots of different um equipment to for the kids to sort of play on and for us adults to play on as well it sounds really fun it just sounds like um that film with Lindsay Lohan when she's yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) or Goosebumps book and (laughs) so (laughs) thankfully not like the Goosebumps book with all all the mysteries and (laughs) less horror more love yeah less yeah (laughs) that is where you met your husband so tell me about meeting Sam and and your subsequent travels yeah so um we both worked at Sam and I met in the US, but he's from the UK. We both were at the same summer camp in, oh, it was a while ago, so it was 2008, but we didn't actually meet them. We had a lot of mutual friends. And I remember one of my friends saying to me, you need to beat this person. You and him would be perfect for each other. But it wasn't until 2009. And I didn't actually go back for the summer of 2009. I just went back to visit and then to sort of do a little bit of travel um, with my friends 
post camp, which was, uh, and so we ended up traveling together, just became really, really good friends. And um, just, we both went back to, to our countries and we just sort of talked every single day. And um, we agreed to sort of meet back at camp in 2010. Uh, and then from there, we, you know, the rest is kind of history. We traveled around for about 18 months through um, North America, Central South America. We did the two summers in the US as well as the shoulder season and a winter in Canada uh, before we moved back to Australia. So fun. And yeah. your friends were obviously <laughs> completely spot on. Yeah, they were spot on. Yeah. But because of that as well, I think we, we have so many friends that have international relationships as well, where someone is from, you know, the UK or the US or sort of Canada and Australia as well. So um, we have lots of people that sort of understand the challenges of having an international relationship where mm. someone's family is is quite far away as well, which is which is good. Too. Mm, speaking from experience, intercontinental love is not easy. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Um, what are some of the challenges that you two have faced in that regard? I'd say when we first moved back to Australia, it was basically starting from scratch and visas are expensive and they're quite an invasive process. Mm. And, uh, and it was still back in the day where you had to send folders of information. <laughs> so we had this, this folder that I don't even know how thick it was, but, and we had to post that off and basically has all these bank statements and all of these, you know, different um, correspondences and highlighted information to sort of show that our lives had been entwined for as long as what they had been and that we were um, a genuine, legitimate sort of couple as well but with that sort of comes the stress of him being initially sort of on a work visa and then being on a bridging visa and not being able to leave the country while being on a bridging visa and um, and then eventually his actual visa coming through but it, I think it's it's sort of around one of the things that we were really um, cognizant of was the fact that because he was from overseas we needed to set our lives up in a way that if he ever needed to go back home for whatever reason that he could get, there was no barriers for him being able to do that. And so we built our lives also in a way that was really just dependent on one person's income. And, and that means making sacrifices. So where we would have loved to have bought, you know, a really beautiful apartment in Melbourne, we couldn't afford that on, you know, basically on one person's wage. So we we moved out of the city um, where it was far more accessible and affordable to us at the time. So there's definitely been uh, sacrifices and choices that have been made. And don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm very aware that even being able to purchase a property is a privilege um, as well. But we it, it might have meant that we we only had sort of one vehicle for a really long time before we, you know, were in a position to be able to buy a second vehicle or um, just things for us were probably a little bit slower. Yeah, it's yeah. really interesting to have that foresight from such an early stage of your relationship. And there's nothing like going through a visa scenario to really make you feel like a criminal for no, oh, yeah. <laughs> no apparent reason. Yeah, yeah. And especially, you know, back in those days when you were trans transferring money like we weren't thinking about what we were putting we were transferring money for rent to each other and those sorts of things and so there were some pretty interesting things highlighted on those bank statements as to the reasons why money was being transferred so you also, <laughs> also feel a little dodgy with those things I'm sure they've seen worse so those immigration yeah. officers would have what five meter thick skin yeah they must have some good stories yeah totally <laughs> So then you worked in corporate in Melbourne for around 15 years when you returned to yeah. Australia. What is, it, what is it that you loved about it and what did you find challenging about that industry? 
Yeah. So I've always had a love for business. I didn't really kind of realize that I didn't, um, at, when I finished school, I didn't actually go to university. I was working at KFC. I didn't know what I wanted to do, didn't know what I wanted to be. Um, and then I got a traineeship. Uh, and I, as part of that, I, it, it just so happened to be in financial services. And I just, I really fell in love with financial services and, and numbers and, um, and that sort of work as well. And I've worn many different hats over the years as sort of as part of that. But I think, I think one of the things mostly is just um, the opportunity to understand the language of money. <laughs> like I think that that's really important. And actually it sort of sometimes still surprises me that we're not taught about superannuation or we're oh. not necessarily taught about budgeting or how credit cards or, you know, the banking systems kind of, yeah, tax. Yeah. And, and so I think it was one of those things that, I, or investments, you know, like it was just really interesting to just kind of get, get in, get my hands dirty and, and learn as much as I could. And then um, in the later years, I was working on a couple of really interesting programs of work. So I worked on a lot of the remediation stuff that was done within the superannuation environment that was then reported in as part of the Banking Royal Commission. So I was working on that sort of years prior to it all sort of coming out in the media and, and being a lot more um, public. And, and they were some really interesting problems and far more layered than what than what um, many people could even sort of possibly understand. And and so it was really easy for people to be like, why wouldn't they just do it like this? And and it's just not that simple as with anything. There's nuances with with everything, but worked on a pretty large divestment program and then in my most uh, recent years I actually moved out of financial services and went into health services as what was initially a business consultant a senior business consultant um, but quickly moved from that into a product owner so doing digital product development sort of work as well but um, I, I sort of specialize in organizational change management um, continuous improvement business process improvement methodologies analytical insights as well so I love working with data and being able to make data-driven decisions and sort of getting the benefits of those and, and helping businesses to really sort of optimise um, their decision-making and, and where they focus their, their energy as well. Oh, it's such a skill set and also a language in and of itself, not just financial services, but the corporate world. Yeah. So what are some of the skills that you think have been incredibly transferable between the corporate world and agriculture and, and the farm, like the farming industry? Yeah, I think um, one of the things that I'm absolutely learning from sort of moving industries is that everyone kind of has the same problems. It's just, it's just you know, slight variations of those same problems. And a lot of the time it's sort of to do, it's to do with sort of working in silos or not that cross-pollination of information that could be really sort of beneficial and helpful. Communication is massive, you know, like people underestimate um, how important it is to be able to communicate effectively, efficiently efficiently, kindly a lot of the time, you know, um, clear as kind. And, and, and so it's just really kind of uh, everything is transferable is what I'm, is really probably one of the things that I've learned over the, over the years. It's just sometimes about getting in, sitting back, listening, learning the language of that industry and then figuring out sort of um, how to gently start to sort of change make changes that are that are going to be really positive and, and beneficial as well so there's nothing worse than somebody sort of coming in stamping their feet telling everyone 
um, or stomping their feet rather, telling everyone that, you know, these are all the reasons that you're doing things wrong and this is the way to do it. It's it's not beneficial for anyone. Like you need to be sort of respectful and mindful of the way that things have been done because there's a lot of value in in the new information, but there's a lot of value in the old information too. Mm. And it's about sort of merging those two and, and finding the balance um, between them as well. Yeah, I think that's really true as farms are increasingly professionalised, that joined up thinking is just so critical and perhaps um, it gets lost a little bit when the the younger generations and the older generations clash over yeah. um, whose ideas are, are probably more prominent. So tell me about succession planning for your family and, and why you chose to, to make the decisions that you did. It came down to sort of um, necessity mostly, but it was also about being conscious of the fact that these are really difficult conversations. It's not, it's it's not straightforward and it's not easy and and in some circumstances it might not feel fair as well. But we knew my mum and dad were ready to sort of retire and start to slow down. As part of that, there was a you know a, a conversation around well, in order to sort of retire and live comfortably, then you would need to kind of sell the farm. If you don't want to sell the farm, then we'll need to look at what are our options to continue to be able to hold on to the farm as a family and um, sort of what does that look like? And I've got um, I've got two older sisters. I, I know I mentioned them before, Tony and Lee, but it was also Lee has her own small business and, um, and so she didn't, as well as two young kids. And so she wasn't going to have the time to be able to sort of invest in the family business or the family farm and so she made the decision that she wouldn't be involved but and so then it was sort of myself and Tony and um, my partner Sam he decided that he would he'd like to be involved in it as well and so all of a sudden you can already see that there's an imbalance with um, the people that are sort of putting the energy and the money into sort of taking over and and then what does it look like to when you know, my mum and dad pass away in terms of um, dividing that asset between the three girls. And and so we knew that we were going to have to have some really uncomfortable conversations as part of it. And they weren't all easy. It, it is a very difficult thing. It's difficult for my mum and dad. It's difficult for us. It's difficult for my sister who, um, who hasn't been sort of involved in um, the financial decision making of the property and the direction that the property is going in. And she's been incredible and she's backed us and she comes and she helps us and she does all these amazing things. Um, but it's, it's sort of like, yes, she has a voice, but maybe not necessarily a vote, you know? Mm. And so it's kind of working through like, what does that, what does that look like? And how do we make sure that also as a family, we don't break down as part of this process. And so we did engage with um, a professional lawyer that, that, um, that specialises in succession planning with farms. And so it's something that we still need to sort of finalise that process. But it was just mostly about getting really clear um, on expectations and and boundaries around sort of what that looks like. But the, the, the ultimate goal was that for my mum and dad to be able to retire, to be comfortable for us to be able to keep the farm. And how could we do that in a way that sort of um, met everyone's needs? Mm. How did you manage to take the uh, knee-jerk reaction or the reactivity out of such an emotional topic, which is farming? Yeah, <laughs> um, it's definitely hard. You can't, you, you can't. So, I, I, well, I mean, 
maybe some people can, but that's that there were some really heavy conversations and some really emotive conversations as part of it. And um, I think it's the biggest thing is to keep the communication open and keep talking to everybody and make sure that everyone's on the same page. And that means even sometimes when people are feeling a little hurt or a little upset, just, um, you know, hey, I hear you, like, this is hard. It's hard for all of us. Like, and, um, and then just make checking in and, you know, the biggest thing, keeping communication lines open and making sure everyone's on the same page. That's, mm. that's the most important thing that sort of has got us through to, to where we are today, because it's easy for things to become misinterpreted or to, for people's perceptions to be, um, slightly biased according to what they may be more sensitive to as well and so and we all have um we all have different sort of triggers as part of these conversations but yeah open communication just being open honest transparent and um keeping the communication open and it sounds like you also kept the value of the relationships high on the priority list yeah absolutely like because I mean as a family we you know we love each other and it and conflict is good people tend to think conflict is bad but actually conflict allows you to sort of move through and and make you know good decisions and be able to keep moving forward you you know if you live in a world and where you're never challenging each other and you're never kind of yeah you're never sort of sanity checking or getting other people's perceptions or or inputs then you know, it's it's really easy to kind of go down the wrong path as well or to sort of misinterpret things or um and so yeah, conflict is healthy. I don't I don't think people talk about that enough as well. I think people tend to try to avoid it. Yeah, absolutely. In the right place and, and right tone. Yeah. I think and it's um, gotta be respective. It needs to be, yeah, respectful. Yes. And also um I think, you know, chaos precedes change. So sometimes yeah. things have to get a little bit bumpy before, you know, you, you turn the corner. Yeah. So you moved to the farm, you and Sam, uh, a couple of years ago, 2019. Tell me about becoming accidental farmers by proxy. Yeah. Yeah. Or so flower farmers by proxy. Accidental. Yeah. We're accidental flower farmers by proxy. So uh, in 2019, when we were succession planning and taking over our family farm, my cousin Jade and her husband Hayden had just put, purchased their own farm uh, just outside of Geelong in Nawari. Um, They didn't realise it when they purchased it, but it actually had about nine acres of established perennial wildflowers and natives. Um, and they had actually planned to bulldoze those uh, flower that flower patch to make more room for their beef stock uh, their beef cattle as well so only days away from bulldozing they realized that their plants were flowering and they decided to get a flower consultant out to take a look at them we're told that actually it was a pretty viable business and back in um back in its former glory uh, they were actually one of the largest exporters I think maybe to Japan for their proteas and um, natives as wow. uh, as well and so with a little love and a lot of hard work by them they were able to bring the flower patch back to its former glory again and um, realised that it was a really sort of viable business. And it was also sort of during COVID when um, imports into Australia had been significantly reduced. And so there was this really high demand for their flowers um, as well. 
And so they had convinced us to do a trial patch. So we had already been planning to put in truffle trees and um, that's quite a lengthy process within itself. But as part of that, we'd done soil testing and started to prep soil and the perennial wildflowers and natives like the same soil as the truffles. And so we put about 95 plants in the ground as um, as a trial patch and, and they did really, really well. And so we've been... Um, planting and expanding ever since as well. So I say Jade and Hayden, they're the accidental flower farmers and we're the accidental flower farmers by proxy. <laughs> Jade and Hayden's flowers must have seen the bulldozer coming over the horizon yeah. and like, quick, flower. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's show them what we're good yeah. for. <laughs> it's crazy to think that they were even considering bulldozing them now because they're just they they're just stunning and they've they've got these really really sort of well-established trees and yeah it's just incredible and they've been planting and expanding ever since as well so such a journey because I know your dad had a travel consultant come out a long time ago and was told that the soil was completely dead so what was the regeneration process like for you yeah so uh he had it, it well we had it we worked with a travel consultant I think he had sort of maybe I'm not sure what consultant he had come out, but it was someone that had said where we planted the truffles that they'd come and they'd said that his um, his soil was dead and it would never he'd never grow a thing on the property and um, and so for us it was the ground was really sort of compacted. My mum and dad had never sort of had any kind of um, farm management uh, plan with their stock. They were just kind of allowed everywhere and we have fences and gates and we'd move them sort of but a lot of the time the property was just kind of open and they could go anywhere that they wanted to go so it was really around deep ripping breaking up aerating that compacted soil power harrowing just sort of getting the ground to a place where it was it was actually going to be able to you know you'd be able to actually even put a shovel in the ground and and pick up the dirt. It was probably one of the main things. Um, with the truffles, we needed to sort of treat the soil with a little bit of lime as well as part of that process. But we also, with the, where the truffle patch was, we had to go through and pick up any rocks that were bigger than a golf ball. Oh. And um, we have, there's this one uh, belt, rocky belt through the area that we had put it. And I can't tell you how many hours we spent walking up and down those rows, picking up rocks. It was wild and then it went from anything bigger than a golf ball to bigger than a fist to anything bigger than two fists and uh, it was still many many hours but if we had to just move the truffle patch down probably about 50 <laughs> meters there would have been no shelter there would have been no belt of rocks that we had to pick up so <laughs> that was a very hard lesson learned as well but yeah now if you go up the paddock and and we've done it to sort of a lot of the areas within the farm especially we've we've got a little bit more of a plan around well we, we want to move eventually sort of into the regenerative farming and we've been taking baby steps as part of that but it was definitely about revegetating the land getting wind shelters in so we've we've sort of put uh 400 truffle trees in we've planted over 2,000 perennial wildflowers and natives but we've put also over 2,000 um native trees to our area back in the ground as well and with many more to sort of where we've got more to go in the ground now a couple of hundred that are waiting to go in the ground over winter and um, we'll just continue to keep planting the property property out as we as we go Mm, massive process because the the truffle is a bit of a a medium to long-term investment isn't it can you tell me like you know how long it takes before they become viable and and what their process looks like 
Yeah, definitely. So for us, it was about two years worth of soil prep before the trees even went in the ground. So our trees have now been in the ground just over two years. Um, They don't usually start to produce until three to five years after being in the ground. And then they tend to produce an increase sort of uh, year on year, like they tend to double year on year, but they don't hit maturity until 10 to 15 years. And so it's very much a long-term investment because um, it's, it's expensive to, it's a lot of money up front mm. for that that long-term sort of investment as well. But um, what sort of return can you expect? Well, they say that truffles is, you know, um, per gram, it's, it's you know, more expensive to, to buy than gold as well. But our hope is that, you know, once they start to sort of hit maturity, that we'll be getting sort of, uh, you know, 20 plus kilos worth of truffles from from what we have in the ground we will probably That's look annually to, yeah yeah so once yeah and, and I could be wrong it could be more as well like I um I am probably not as well versed in the actual sort of what the expected uh, yield on those will be um compared to sort of Sam but it we we should once they do start to return it should sort of cover our costs and um or the upfront sort of investment as well but we'll probably also look to do an aspect of agritourism as well which we bought our truffle dog this year oh no last year so she's just she's just turned one and so she's about to sort of formally start her truffle training um as well but we've got her so that so if they do sort of start to produce because they'll be sort of sporadic from next year onwards Mm. um we'll at least have her on site to be able to kind of do that. So we're not having to pay for people to come in and, and check the truffles um, in the ground as well. Mm. But yeah. What sort of dog is she? She's a Legato. So she is one of the, um, she's an Italian water dog, but they are also the dogs that are well known for, um, for truffle hunting. So she came from a truffle farm in Western Australia um, and they'd sort of started her truffle training before she she came to us. And then we had different bits of advice around sort of let her just be a puppy uh, versus, you know, start continue her training with her. But we made the decision to just let her kind of be a puppy and, and, and enjoy the first sort of um, 12 months. But she's she started her training a few weeks ago just in terms of I guess, more strict obedience training first before we move into the formal truffle hunting training. Yeah, it's so fascinating. I don't know anything about truffle farming. So does Australia have a large market for truffles? It's definitely an emerging market. I think that there's there's a lot more sort of people coming into the truffle industry now as well. And I think that it has actually been named also as one of AgriFutures emerging industries as well. Um, I'd say there's and there's different there's a lot there's a lot of sort of truffle farms around in sort of Victoria and Western Australia that I'm sort of that I'm aware of we will be one of the closest truffle farms though in the west to Melbourne when once we're up and running and and established as well so mm. because they do like those um those cooler climates and and my understanding is that they need that cooler weather and those hard frosts to ripen the truffles and to really get that scent as well Mm, fascinating. And so moving to the flowers, um, how has that been as as an industry to, to kind of get to? And what have been some of your pain points in having a micro flower business? Yeah, so for us, I think 
Um, and this is really where Grow Not Flown was born as well as like one of the first things that I did when we um, took over the family farm was I looked at what technologies were available for us to be able to sort of utilise for to assist with the farm management and collecting our farm data and being able to help us with reaching consumers, but also um, planning for the future. And I, I just, yeah, I wasn't able to find any ag tech that was sort of suitable or going to be able to help us. Everything that was available was geared towards those commercial sort of growers and it was and it was quite it was quite expensive to be able to sign up and use and it just wasn't going to be fit for purpose for us and so that was one of the biggest things is that there was nothing that there was nothing available to us to be able to sort of utilize the other things were really around we were going to have to build and manage our own our own websites we were going to need to sort of build a social media um, presence because there was no aggregated view of the different flower farmers um, or digital platform to be able to sell. There was, you know, there was no aggregated view of all the different flower farms that were sort of in the area. And so um, it was hard to be able to identify and find other flower farms as well. And so there was no digital platform unless you were to sort of build your own um you know, to build your own website or social media following. And so we we sort of were thinking for ourselves, it was sort of like, well, if we're going to build it, why not build it for everyone and, and sort of create this technology and this platform that is accessible um, and provides that aggregated view because it's not only important for consumers to easily be able to find local flower farmers but it's also important for flower farmers to be able to find other local flower farmers as well and so it's really about sort of building that community but um, some of the other challenges as well so you know while we were going through this process um, Jade and Hayden had you know these very different challenges which was People were contacting them for flowers that were completely out of season. They had people contacting them saying that they were going to be visiting the region and who else was in their area that they could stop by and pick flowers up as well as someone that was doing a destination event and could they buy flowers for that um, event as well. And so we were talking about all of these sort of um, challenges and pain points that we were kind of having and and that's really kind of how Grow Not Flown was born. It was sort of like, yeah, there's got to be an easier way and and what does that look like and and so we we built we really did build what we wished was available when we first started our because flower how, farming journey how were you going to sell your flowers what was the plan yeah so we had been really purposeful with our farm in that we had gone with lower volumes of um, flowers and more variety, higher variety, because we wanted to be able to service the local areas. Based on sort of some of the research that we had done on, and listening to different flower farmers, they you'd, you'd hear that they would take their products or they would approach different florists and they would, um, it was, you know, cold calling or it was setting up their websites or creating that social media presence. But because there was no easy way to actually be able to find them. So for us, we were kind of thinking like, it, it was really challenging. We were like, well, yeah, I guess we have to build a website. We have to do social media. We have to get people interested in our farm and in our produce, um, knowing that we might not actually have produce to be able to deliver to people, or you might be turning them away and you just, or, or you might have a high waste because you can't actually, you don't have enough people there to, to sort of buy it. And so you, we looked at things like uh, roadside stalls, um, yeah, who, who in our local area. But the, the other side of this is also that as if you were a florist or a floral designer, 
or even just a DIY bride or just a general flower consumer, if you wanted to purchase locally grown flowers, there was, there's, one of the challenges has really been around that industry transparency. And so they would have to spend a huge amount of effort um, going through social media, trying to find where the growers were because there just wasn't this centralised platform or view to be able to easily go on and identify and, and contact them and, and sort of ask to purchase. So it was it was kind of a problem from both sides to in, in just being able to easily connect with and source locally grown flowers. Because mm, you do speak about not all flowers are grown equal. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so the, the not all flowers are grown equal. So it's really around, at the moment, around 50% of the flowers that um, are sold in Australia are imported. So with imported flowers comes high carbon emissions, energy consumption, environmental degradation with reduced biodiversity and, and those sorts of things. But even just with flowers coming into Australia, because Australia has a really high biosecurity rules around it, the flowers need to be treated with some really harsh chemicals um, as part of that process. And so when we sort of say not all flowers are grown equal, it's because, you know, um, a, a locally grown flower, the majority of the micro and small scale flower farms will grow using chemical free, organic, regenerative and sustainable practices, as opposed to the more sort of, um, you know, the imported flowers that are grown and then treated with these really harsh chemicals as, as sort of part of that process of being imported. And so the same way that we want to celebrate the provenance of, with the same way we celebrate the provenance of food, we want to celebrate the provenance of flowers and we want consumers to be aware of um, or understanding the process that it takes from, you know, um, stem to store to vase and, and, and what that, so that they can make conscious decisions really around mm. when they're bringing flowers into their home. Um, how have those flowers been grown? How have they been treated? And the same way that you wouldn't leave, you know, a container of Roundup on your kitchen table, so some of these flowers are treated in a, in a chemical compound that's used in Roundup and then we're, we're putting them on our kitchen table. Mm, fascinating. It's something I haven't even thought about. I love that stem to store. So can you tell me in a nutshell the premise of Grown to Flown and how popular, like what has the response been? Yeah, so Grown Not Flown is very much a sort of a global movement that's been happening um, around slow flowers within the industry, but it's really about sort of understanding um, the, the flower miles that sit behind the flowers that we're consuming in our everyday lives and understanding that from where they are grown to where they are consumed and what does that distance look like and that the same way that we have fast food, fast fashion, we also have fast flowers and and we're not against imports. You know, imports serve an important part of the supply chain within Australia especially. And so it's just making sure that consumers are aware and making conscious decisions around their flowers as well. But it's just really about sort of embracing slow, seasonal, locally grown, um, supporting local farmers and, and all the great things that come with seasonal flowers. And, and that can include seasonal variety, you know, um, because a lot of the larger, you know, when flowers are imported, we tend to sort of, they tend to be one type of flower and at mass, as opposed to these micro and small scale growers that um, have the opportunity to grow lots of different varieties and, um, and sort of offer something as an alternative or different to your stock standard flowers that, um, that are imported. And the response has been enormous. Like in your second month, you went global. Tell me about how many countries you're in and, and what sort of um, reach do you have? 
Yeah. So we started, so Grown Up Flame started as a social media platform in um, February 21. Our social media account sort of grew really quickly as well. So we currently have over 11,000 followers on our Instagram account. We also created our own hashtag, which is GNF Support Local. And that was so that people could use that so that we could find their um, their produce, reshare it on our page as well, but also other people could follow that, that hashtag. And that's been used um, over 16,000 times as well. And when we first started, it had never been used at all. And um, and so our social media quickly morphed into the online platform that's available today. And we currently have over 5,000 users, over 1,100 flower farms listed on our global map and users in over 30 different countries, which is is absolutely wild to us. So when we built Grow Not Flown, we built it with the Australian sort of flower market or cut flower industry in mind, but we built it with global capabilities because we sort of thought, you know, in a post-COVID world, if people are having um, destination weddings and once, you know, people are able to travel, you know, if they want to support local in those different countries, well, sort of how do they do that? And um, I guess what we didn't realise was that our our challenges and pain points transcended borders. And in our second month, we were sort of, um, we're in not just Australia, but we were, we had users in North America, the UK, Europe, New Zealand, and it's just continued to grow from there. And, um, and it, it, yeah, every day we've got new users signing up. We've not done any sort of formal marketing. It's all been very much organic growth. Um, we've received, you know, a bit of media coverage as a result of the AgriFutures Rural Women's Award, which has been incredible. And that's certainly attributed to some of our large spikes in growth in sort of the last few months in particular. But it's, I guess there was this global need for this community to kind of come together and and it's it's incredible that we've been able to sort of enable that um as part of our grow not flowing platform Mm, it is absolutely remarkable you talk about the business being pre-revenue so when do you envisage you will be able to turn a profit and and um and how will you do that yeah. So we're a self, we're self-funded startup as well. And so um, everything that we've sort of done has come out of our own pockets, um, being the two farms that sit behind Grow Not Flown, which is our farm, Duck Duck Pig, and my cousin's farm, um, Nawari Flower Farm. And, and so we are looking to sort of it, the way that the platform works at the moment is like a global directory flower farmers can sort of they can sign up for free or users sign up for free um, the farms can create an account they can kind of catalog what they've got available you can message within the platform we've also got a grower forum that sits within the platform as well but in the next couple of weeks we'll be switching on transactions um, and so we wanted again the, the technology needed to be accessible and and one of our goals goals is to remove the need for those micro and small scale growers to have to build and manage their own website. And, and so if they're able to sort of, and, and to have real time information available so that as a florist, floral designer, general flower consumer, you can log in and you can see what's available and you're going to get updated information on seasonality and um, and be able to see what's yeah available and, and, and purchase um, directly through the platform. And so we'll take a small transaction fee as part of that. But again, we wanted to keep it really, really accessible. So our fee will be 
three and a half percent. And then there's also um, a Stripe processing fee that sits on top of that. That's about three percent. So and then we'll look to sort of build out the functionality in the future to be able to continue to help growers um, to expand their business and easily streamline and manage their operations. And that'll be things like um, online order forms, e-invoicing, if different growers work as a collective, how do they manage that, the business side of that in the back end, but also being able to sort of understand their seed to stem, to store profitability within their farm so that they can make data-driven decisions when planning for the future. And we'll look to probably put some of those functionalities uh, behind a subscription model, but ensuring that it's always accessible because our main focus really is around those micro small scale growers the platform can be used we've got all sorts of growers on there so we've got you know medium large commercial size growers as well it is accessible and inclusive um, but our focus is really around those micro and small scale you've recently um, run masterclasses as well so that yeah could be a, an added another feature. Yeah, yeah. And that's something that we're start we're exploring at the moment. So we were really kind of blown away at how successful the masterclass was. We had um it was we ran it on design and business uh in collaboration with Nadine Brown from the Ivy Institute. And we had over 400 people register from eight different countries as part of that masterclass. And and so from here, it's sort of like, well, what what other value add can we do? And, and, and we'll probably look to sort of set these up and bring in, you know, different people that are experts within their fields to be able to run and support these small businesses as well. And we'll charge we'll probably charge a small fee for those just so that we can cover it. We can continue to cover our costs and, um, and obviously the costs of the facilitators of those courses, but um, it's mostly just around supporting, you know, those, those small growers, those small businesses um, to continue to, to bloom. Yeah. And how important is this diversification of income streams when you do run a small farm a small acreage and you're looking to make it viable it's I mean for us it's really really important I think that you know with with any sort of farming there's there's so much volatility that happens that it's important to sort of have um, diversified incomes to be able to help for those rainy days if something's not quite working in one in one particular area then you've got something else to sort of be able to fall back on I know sort of even within our farm some of the things that we're looking at doing is um, you know where we've we've still got small scale beef cattle but there's you know subscription meat packages that are sort of coming out and and this is a we see grow not flow and we'll expand beyond flowers we want to expand into produce we want to help all those different micro small scale growers no matter what what sort of field they're in what produce gourmet producers those sorts of things um and so we see you know we'll use this platform in the future to be able to sell our truffles to be able to connect with um chefs hospitality you know um everyday um consumers and and you know potentially be able to stand up and sell our you know our beef products through there as well and you know fresh eggs and we see the platform in the future so currently within the platform we've got it that you can do a search based on who has roadside stalls so if you're in an area we're integrated with zoom uh with um with google maps so you can you know there's a little map flag or a little map marker wherever there's sort of a flower farm and and so you could 
filter your search uh, by roadside stalls and you could go and basically do a little bit of a food trail or a flower trail around if you're visiting a region and pick up fresh eggs, pe- um, pick up, you know, maybe dairy products or flowers, um, some, you know, strawberries, whatever it might be that's within that particular region. I can literally see the excitement pouring out of your face, particularly when you speak (laughs) about the data side. And we were chatting yesterday about your recent neurodivergent um, self-diagnosis or perhaps just like, you know, a little bit of a change of your own perception. Can you tell me a little bit about that and how that maybe feeds into your love of data and and all things (laughs) business? Yeah. So I love, well, I love like really clear direct information and I think numbers is one of those things that you kind of um but I yeah last year kind of discovered that I was neurodivergent and so that's been a really interesting um journey for me and it's been really quite healing I think to kind of look back and have an understanding as to maybe why things were the way that they were when I was much younger and some of the challenges that I had in in kind of fitting in or or why I didn't quite ever sort of understand certain situations and but I, lo- I love data and, and part of that as well and I think it's why I was probably successful in my corporate years doing things like um, organizational change management and business process improvement was because I have a tendency to be able to kind of um, read or spot patterns or cycles or uh, and so if I'm looking at a problem I can usually sort of find the solution really really quickly other people and then I used to always be really kind of frustrated as to why other people I was like but it's so obvious like this is what it is why why can't anyone else see that Um, but but it was just that my brain kind of got there a little bit quicker than other people's. And so I've had to learn to kind of slow down and allow other people to kind of catch up as part of that journey as well. But I love the potential that there is within this industry as well with, with the data, you know, um, 72% of the industry is made up of other growers. So, you know, those micro, small scale, medium, large size growers. I think that there's a huge data industry gap that we'll be able to help fill with the aggregated insights that we'll be able to collate, collect within our platform. And we don't want to collect that for ourselves. We want to give that back to the industry. We want to be able to help strengthen the industry as a whole and all of those people that, you know, um, are contributing to this really sort of positive space and, and, mm. and industry as well. And so it's, yeah, it's been sort of recognising and, and for want of a better term, but realising sort of what my superpowers are as part of this and and how I can sort of utilise those in a in a really kind of effective and good way. Yeah, I was just about to say it sounds like a superpower. And when you say um, neurodivergent, you mean on the autism spectrum? Yeah, with a little sprinkle of ADHD as well. So that's why sometimes if I'm having a conversation, I'm jumping all over the place. It was really funny when I was um, growing up, my best friend uh, in high school, her and I, we would have these conversations and we'd just start in the middle and we'd both understand what each other was saying and we'd be jumping all over and other people that were listening would be like, I, what, like, what are you talking about? I don't understand it. And now we're both kind of like, oh, that's why no one understood us. We knew where, what was going on in each other's brains and, and what was happening and just didn't even think anything about it. But I've got to be really conscious of the fact that these days that I, I quite often do that still, I'll have 
part of a conversation or I'll be thinking about something and then when I go to start the conversation I'm mid-conversation but obviously that other person doesn't have the context or the or the background as to as to how I got there so yeah but I love that it's a celebration and you know all of the positive aspects of something like an ADHD or an autism diagnosis like the microfocus and the ability to kind of distinguish between what's really important or a priority within your particular niche. Um, yeah. I think that, that they're fabulous things to celebrate. So it's really interesting to hear it from your perspective. Uh, I'm so excited to watch what you do with Grow Not Flown. What was it like winning AgriFutures and becoming the finalist for Victoria? And what do you intend to do with your Westpac grant? Yeah, it was. I I didn't expect it. I um I was uh I was lucky enough to be a finalist last year as well, which was um, a state finalist last year as well. And so I I would say when I was going through that process, like I was still really kind of apprehensive to talk about grown not flown in the same way that I talk about it now, is because it almost felt like I almost felt a little bit embarrassed to sort of be like, oh, we created this thing and like, oh yeah, I guess it is doing well. And you know, whereas now I'm kind of like, no, like this is amazing. We're doing really really kind of cool things and great things but I yeah it was a complete shock to me I ugly cried on stage when I (laughs) when I won I didn't expect to win and I was really overwhelmed with emotion and but it's been it's been genuinely life-changing and it's been genuinely you know not just for myself but for our brand and our business as well and just sort of the the I would say the recognition and sort of, I guess, the pat on the back for all of those unseen moments. You know, you often hear people sort of joke about the five-year um, overnight success and it it really is that. It's sort of like there's early mornings when I was still working full-time up until November last year when it got to the point where the platform had just grown so much that, you know, I was working 16, 18-hour days most days and, and people don't see that. They don't see that side of it. So I was getting up before work, working, having meetings, um opening my then closing my my personal laptop opening my work laptop being in meetings all day closing that laptop opening my personal laptop then working till you know 11 12 o'clock at night and then doing it all again the next day plus weekends and as well as the farm and and so I think it was just really nice to kind of um to sort of get that validation and recognition for for all of that unseen work and and that that just the that someone you know that AgriFutures and um, you know Westpac and um, Agriculture Victoria believe in what we're doing and what we can achieve and and where we can go to from here and um, so with the bursary the Westpac bursary we are planning to build out a knowledge hub as well as run support local campaigns because we are a self-funded startup it means we've had no budget for marketing at all in and so that we've had to it's we've had to be really creative with how we've um you know built our audience and and reached new audiences and i think we've kind of done a good job but in order to move to to get to where we are today but in order to move to the next phase it'll be amazing to actually have sort of fun sitting there dedicated to that and part of the knowledge hub is those you know master classes and um, being able to sort of aggregate the different industry insights in really meaningful ways to be able to help those growers to streamline and support their businesses so that they can find information that's relevant and um, to their to their situations one of the challenges we have in Australia is that the majority of the resources that are available or the southern hemisphere really is that most of the information books and those sorts of things is definitely based on the northern hemisphere the u.s 
in, and you know UK Europe in particular so it'll be really cool for us to be able to kind of create this knowledge hub and this library of information for Australian growers but but also globally as well mm. it's also really exciting to see things that are happening with the with AI and chat GPT and and what the potential of those sorts of things mean for our industry also yeah, interesting. I, I guess in a way, and it, maybe this wasn't your experience, but I envisage that it could possibly be, is that the, winning the the finalist, the Victoria finalist for the Agri-Futures Rural Women's Award must in some way have legitimised calling yourself a farmer because, you know, coming back and, and it's only just coming back to the farm so recently, did you find that subconsciously you shied away from calling yourself a farmer? Yeah, and to be honest with you, I probably still I still struggle to sort of to sort of put myself in that position because I do feel like I'm an imposter and an intruder in the farming space. But I am someone I love learning. I love the idea of being able to get involved in other industries as well and being able to cross pollinate that information and and bring some of those insights back into the cut flower industry as well as part of it. But yeah, it was it was definitely something that was there was um, something that sort of helped legitimise what it was that we were doing or where we fit. And I think the other thing being is that because we are so new to this industry, you know, really we've only been in it for a few years, is that we didn't necessarily know or feel like we were the right people to be doing what we were doing. And so I think almost for the first year, we kind of, we didn't really kind of talk much about ourselves, even on Grow Not Flown. We waited a couple of months or probably even six months or something before we kind of truly introduced ourselves and who we were that sat behind that account. Um, And I think we were worried that people would think that we were imposters or we didn't deserve to kind of be here. Mm, Well, you definitely do. And uh, you've got the vote from AgriFutures. So I think that probably pops you right in the forefront of totally deserving where you are. Uh, It's been it's been such a delight talking to you Nikki so thank you so much and I look forward to to watching the the journey of Grown Not Flown. Thanks Emily I appreciate it thanks for having me. I learned so many things about the truffle and flower industries from this chat with Nikki. I have to confess, I've been super ignorant about the flowers I pick up, usually from the supermarket as I whiz past with my trolley, and would definitely be looking at the small print on the next bouquet I buy. Or just skip the hassle and check Grow Not Flown for where to buy seasonally and locally. Thank you so much for joining us for this special series of Life in the Land. I have gobbled up the conversations with each AgriFutures Rural Women's Award State and Territory winner. Every single businesswoman is doing such extraordinary and interesting things. People are so great. It's not lost in us that there are squillions of podcasts you could be listening to. And by golly, we appreciate you choosing us to spend some time with. If you enjoyed this episode, why not send it around your circle and help spread the Grazy Her word? And if you made it this far, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing Life in the Land. It's a competitive world out there, and this helps others find us. Until next time, keep well. I'm Em Herbert, and this is a Grazy Her podcast. <laughs>